Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Line Podcast. This is Aaron Salvato, and I am actually on vacation right now. I am visiting my family, taking my wife and my son Jack to see his cousins, having a great time with my sisters and their kids and their families and my parents, and uh, yeah, just taking some well-needed rest. The last few months have been just non-stop craziness, so I'm happy to say I am resting. But I still wanted to share some content with you guys this week that I thought would be helpful. A big part of this show is we want to dive into tough questions and ask the hard questions of faith and realize that there's no easy answers. And so we can take time to really wrestle through issues. And so I wanted to share with you guys a sermon that I preached back when I was on staff at Calvary Chapel Vista. And this sermon is all about the concept of what is the unforgivable sin? So if you've ever wondered, can I commit a sin that is so bad that it's unforgivable and it will kick me out of my chance of entering into the kingdom of heaven, then this episode's for you. So with that, I'm going to just turn it over to the sermon. I hope you enjoy this. I hope it blesses you. I hope it encourages you. And Brian and I will be back soon with some more great content in the weeks to come. Thanks for listening to the Good Line Podcast. So we're currently in a series called The King and His Kingdom, and in the middle of that series, we're kind of in a mini-series, a series within a series, if you will, called The King Answers Your Questions. And so we're looking at some of the biggest questions about life and theology and scripture, and we're bringing it out, and we're seeing how does King Jesus answer these questions. So when my dad asked me to speak, I was asking him, what do you want me to teach on? And the passage that came up was in Matthew 12, the passage of the unforgivable sin. And when I heard that, I was like, whoa, that's a heavy, heavy topic. Unforgivable, a sin that is unforgivable. That's intense. Now, how would you define unforgivable? I know for me, when I was growing up, I was a cute kid, but then I had a sister, and she's a girl, so naturally she's cuter than me. She came right after me, Amy, my, my sister, about a year later she's born. And she just had this, this cuteness that was unsurpassable. And so, so many times she would do something wrong. She would, you know, take a cookie when she wasn't supposed to or break something. And she would blame me. She would go to my parents and be like, Aaron did it. And she was so much cuter than me. They were looking at her and they're like, how could something this cute lie? But she was, she was lying. And so as a little kid, I was like, that's unforgivable. Another thing that you know, I think of when I think of unforgivable is just the name Bill Clinton. Now, listen, I'm not political. I'm not political. So he, this is not a political statement. Your reasons for thinking that way may be completely different than mine. See, for me, I was a little kid and I watched a show called Mega Man. And this is a show about a robot in the future who was fighting other robots. And he had a brother named Proto Man. He was the prototype robot. And he ended up turning to the dark side halfway through the show. He became evil. And as a little kid watching the show, I was so upset that this character to become evil that I was like, there's only one thing I can do. I've got to write the president of the United States. So in the 90s, I wrote a very nice letter to Bill Clinton. My grandma helped me draft it. And I sent it off, and I thought, this is going to fix everything. And I got a very nice letter from his office, but it didn't fix anything. It was just basically a standard letter. And that's when I lost all hope in politics. That's really the moment it died. <sighs> Come on, Bill. Anyway, as we grow, our definition of unforgivable becomes more intense. For instance, a thought that comes to my mind is Hitler and what he did in the Holocaust. It's just in my flesh. I think that's unforgivable. Perhaps maybe a school shooter or September 11th comes to mind. But I wonder, what does God call unforgivable? Because the Bible does tell us there's an unforgivable sin, and that can be scary. I mean, how many of you have ever wondered about this topic? Have any of you? Is it just me? I've definitely wondered. And so today I have two simple goals for this message. I want to explain to us what the, forgiv the unforgivable sin is, and I want to show us how understanding it should not inspire in us fear, but should actually inspire in us hope. So let's pray as we get into it. Jesus, we love you. This is a heavy topic. Lord, you're a heavy God. The weight of glory is so amazing. You're here with us, and you're glorious, and you're wonderful. 
I pray that you would speak, that your voice would shoot through like an arrow piercing the depths of our heart. Help us, God, to understand you in a deeper, fresh way today. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So, we got to look at the story to understand this. It's in Matthew chapter 12, if you haven't already turned there. But first, a little bit of context. The main character is Jesus. He's the Son of God, and he's sent on a rescue mission. He's 30 years old, and he has begun his teaching ministry. He's been baptized by his cousin John, and now he's preaching, doing miracles, healing the sick. He's drawing huge, huge crowds. He's like the celebrity preacher of his day. But he's not only drawing huge crowds, he's making huge enemies, the Pharisees. Now, these guys were the religious establishment, and in their context, they were conservative, traditional, and huge Bible nerds. Some of us in this room might even relate to them. These guys were traditional. They loved the Bible. They loved the scriptures. They were passionate, and they saw themselves as spiritual guardians of the people, not unlike shepherds. They are pastors. And yet, Jesus looks at these men, and he calls them blind guides. Now, why would he do that? Well, you see, they had become corrupted. They were twisting Scripture to serve themselves more than God, and they loved attention from the people. They loved praise from the people, and so they took advantage of the people, and and they had countless hours of studying the Scriptures, pouring over the Torah and the, the prophecies about the Messiah, and yet the Messiah was standing right in front of them, and they did not even realize it. And Jesus was constantly frustrated with these guys because technically, if you think about it, the Pharisees, the ones who were just studying these scriptures, they should have been the first ones to realize Jesus is the Messiah. All the prophecies line up. They should have been the first people on the front lines of leading people to Jesus, but no. They saw Jesus as a threat, a political and religious threat to their power. Now, I can understand this in some ways. I can understand their perspective because as a pastor, if I was up here teaching and a homeless backpacker walked onto the stage and started saying, I'm the son of God, listen to what I have to say, I would be skeptical and protective as a pastor for you. However, if the Bible had several prophecies about how in the year 2017, a homeless backpacker would come onto a church stage in Vista and start teaching the word of God, I would probably it would be wrong of me to maybe be skeptical of that because it's there in the scripture. So it's on me. And for the Pharisees, they had all the scriptures. They had all the prophecies. Jesus showed up. He fit the bill, and yet they ignored it. They focused on what they hated about Jesus, breaking the rules. You see, Jesus was known for breaking these traditions and rules that these guys had come up with. They had taken the word of God one step further and added their own rules on top of it. So on the, on the Sabbath, you know, it's this day where you're supposed to rest, and it's supposed to be this day where you and your family are just connecting with God. Well, you know, Jesus is hungry with his disciples. They're out in the field. They're homeless, and they are in a field collecting food. And the Pharisees are like, that's work. What are you doing? On another Sabbath, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand a few chapters before. And the Pharisees come, and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? I mean, we don't even let people rescue sheep from ditches on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response is so killer. He's like, well, Pharisees, I mean, wouldn't you say that people are more valuable than sheep? And all the people around are like, oh, wow. <laughs> the Pharisees are just like, oh, this is so frustrating. They, they hated him so much. They saw him as the ultimate rebel and a disrespecting punk. But what they did not realize was that it was actually they who had become the ultimate rebels and the disrespecting punks because God himself is standing right in front of them and they completely ignore him. And in fact, the scriptures say they plotted to kill him. And so in chapter 12, we pick it up. Jesus is in the middle of kind of this healing event and the Pharisees are watching and waiting from the shadows for him to make a wrong move. So verse 22, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus heals him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? You see, Jesus is revealing his identity. Imagine the scene. The Pharisees are freaking out. They're like, no, 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 he is not the Messiah. This is an intense battle for the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. And so they start publicly speaking against Jesus. In verse 24, it says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by the power of Beelzebub, Satan, the prince of demons, that this man drives out demons, which is an intense accusation to make. I mean, think about it. Imagine the scene. You've got the Son of God on one side in this small town healing people 
people and preaching the good news, and then you've got the pastors of that town on the other side going, no, 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 don't listen to him. He's of the devil. This is intense. It was confusing for the people. And Jesus knows what their end game is, so he says, I've got to clear this up. So look at verse 25. Jesus begins to clear it up for us. Verse 25 says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, listen, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And he says, listen, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Satan, by whom do you people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then listen, guys, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. To sum it up, Jesus is saying, guys, why would Satan cast out demons? He'd be attacking his own kingdom. I'm of the kingdom of God. If you're not with me, you're not only against me, you're against God. And then he drops a theological bomb into the conversation. He lets these men know that the sin they're committing is unforgivable intense moment. Verse 31, imagine the tension in the room. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. I'm sure that sent chills down their spine. Anyone who speaks against the Spirit will not be forgiven in this life or the next. Does that send a chill down your spine? In my mind, I immediately go to when I hear this, have I done this? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? And my prayer and hope is that after this message, you'll be able to answer that question with confidence. So before we talk about the unforgivable sin and what it is, we have to talk about what it isn't. We need to talk about what it is not. So when I think of the word blasphemy, I think of cussing. I think of swearing. That's just how I grew up and understand the word. And so for me, when I was growing up and I heard about the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit being the unforgivable sin, little sixth grade Aaron is like, okay, so I'm fine as long as I never say a cuss word and then like the Holy Spirit right after that cuss word. And then of course my brain thought that. It was like cuss word Holy Spirit. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell. Like that's what I thought. I thought I was dead. I was like, oh, like I, for a whole year I'd go to camp and I'd just be like, oh, I'm going to hell. Oh, that's what I thought. It's not that. That's, that's not what it's saying. Also, it's not saying something negative about God or the Spirit. The Bible is filled with people questioning God and His logic and heart and intentions and plans. Listen, God can take it. He's not that soft-skinned. In Psalms, you've got people pouring out their hearts saying, God, like, I don't understand what you're doing. How could you do this? Job, he loses everything. In the whole book of Job, he's questioning God, and he's like, God, where are you? What are your motives and intentions here? Jonah, the preacher sent to preach to Nineveh, can't stand it. It'd be like if you got sent to go preach to ISIS. He's like, these people don't deserve to be saved. God, how could you do this? I don't understand you. If you've ever had a moment of doubt against God and wondered if he hates you for it, look at how he handled Thomas. Thomas is a guy who lived with Jesus and experienced Jesus, and then he watches his mentor and master die on the cross, and he's heartbroken. Thomas is crushed. He is depressed and emotionally and spiritually broken. And so when the disciples come to Thomas and say, Jesus is back from the dead, Thomas' response is, you guys are crazy. That's impossible. I watched him die. The only way I can believe this is if I see the wounds in his hands. And we can read that and think like, oh, Thomas is a skeptic. But I think Jesus didn't see a skeptic. I think Jesus saw a wounded child, a person who'd been so hurt and so let down that he had no hope anymore. And so how does Jesus respond to this doubt? Does he hate on Thomas? Does he show up and say, what do you think now, Thomas? Here I am. No, he appears to Thomas and he's like, Thomas, buddy, here I am. Here are the holes. Like, here, Thomas, see me, experience me. Jesus does not hate us because of our doubt. He loves us and he's so willing to step up up to the plate and prove himself to us whenever we have those doubts. So if it's not that, then what is it? Well, there was a scholar who classified it as this, final defiant rejection. The unforgivable sin is final defiant rejection. Rick Cornish, an author of a book, says this. He says, talking about the Pharisees, their problem was not blind ignorance, but willful rejection. That deliberate refusal to believe, even though knowing the truth, seems to be what God calls the unforgivable sin. Here's what I mean. It's living your life in a way, the unforgivable sin is living your life in a way where you are shaking your fist at God saying, I don't care about your plans. I don't want you to be my king. I don't want to listen and obey. Leave me alone. 
And if we live this way and then die this way, it's truly that one sin that is unforgivable. So let's break it down. Because in the text, we see a lot of subtext from Jesus that supports this view. The first way we see this play out is how the unforgivable sin is a rejection of Jesus as king. And I love that we're doing this series, The King and His Kingdom, because the kingship of Jesus is one of the main thrusts of the New Testament. But so many times we're so focused on the personal salvation aspect of Christianity that we miss on the reality that for the early church, their main message was Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus is making a statement by his healings. He's saying, hey, listen, only God can bring healing, only the king. Look at verse 28. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Listen, by healing people, Jesus was saying, I am from God. I am the king you've been waiting for. And the Pharisees are saying, no, you're not. They say, he's of the devil. He's of the kingdom of darkness. It'd be like if the president of the United States showed up and he walked up on stage and he just wanted to introduce himself and he's like, hey, how's it going? I'm the president of the United States. And we in the audience were like, nope, you're the president of Sweden. He'd be like, no, I'm the president of the United States. Like, I, I've obviously got an American flag on my little pin here. And he's like, we're like, nope, Sweden, sweet. Like, how frustrating would that be for the president? That's what God's going through in this moment. He's the king they've been waiting for. And they're like, nope, you're from, you're from hell. That's what he's going through. Now think about what the man who needed healing was going through. This man is blind and mute. Is that how God intended for this man to be? No. This man was a casualty in the war against God and Satan. He was cursed by sin and the enemy. Think of his life as enemy territory. Enemy territory, something the enemy had captured. So by healing him, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am the king, and by healing this man, I am taking back ground from the enemy. Be healed. When Jesus heals us from sickness and sin, what he is doing is he is the king invading the enemy's territory. And Jesus says this in verse 29. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. This is not Jesus like randomly giving like burglary instructions in the middle of his message. He's just like, yeah, be healed, be saved. And oh, and by the way, if you're ever going to rob somebody, make sure you tie him up first. <laughs> like that's, that would be so weird. Be like, Jesus, what are you doing? No, he's making a spiritual statement. He's saying Satan is the strong man. And yes, he is strong, but I am coming back to take what's mine. And so I'm going to knock him down, tie him up, and rescue what is rightfully mine. It is an awesome picture. But the Pharisees are rejecting that holy invasion. And, and it's because they have this problem of alignment. You see, the unforgivable sin is not being aligned with the king and his kingdom at the moment of your death. Think about it. If a king is invading a kingdom and you stand against him, are you a friend? No, you're an enemy. And he is a king who maybe is giving you chances to switch sides. He's not going to arrest you. He's not going to say, for your crimes, I'm going to lock you up. No, he's saying, I am giving you an opportunity to get on the right side here. If you resist, when the war finally comes, what's going to happen to you? The unforgivable sin is choosing to live our life in a way that is going against the kingdom of God, to reject that he is king and to reject his lordship over our lives. I was talking recently to a young man who came to me. I met him through a school, and, and he came to me, and he was like, I want to know more about Jesus. I had been doing these Christian clubs at this school, and, and, and I had been talking to this guy. He was a teacher at the school, and, and he's just this brilliant guy, this young dude, and, and he, he heard just us talking about Jesus, and he, he was interested, and so we sat down for coffee, and he had all these questions, and they were such great questions, and it was this amazing conversation, and, and he started throwing out hypotheticals, and he was kind of looking at every, at every from all angles. And he was like, okay, so what you're saying about Jesus is awesome. What I'm curious is, what happens to the people who say, I accept that Jesus died for me, but I want to keep living my life however I want? Are those people fine? And I had to stop and pray and think for a moment, but my response was, you know what? No. Because the reality is, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but faith without action is not real faith. Think about it this way. If there is a plane, and you're looking at a plane, and someone's like, do you believe in this plane? Do you believe that this plane can get you to Hawaii? And you're like, yes, I believe that. It's a plane. I know everything about this plane. I went to plane school. I can tell you the wingspan. I can tell you the aerodynamics. I can tell you the wind chill speed factors. I don't know anything about planes, so I'm just making up terms. But in the illustration, the guy's like, I know everything about planes. I am the plane master. Well, then, yeah, I mean, it seems like you believe in the plane, but what if someone says, now get on the plane? And all of a sudden, you start kicking and screaming and saying, I don't want to get on the plane. Don't make me go. Do you actually trust the plane? Do you actually have faith in it? No. You say you do. You have head knowledge about it. But until you step onto the plane, the faith is not real faith. 
Now, Jesus intentionally weeded out those who are unbelievers by saying hard things. There was a moment in Jesus' ministry where he had just done this epic thing. He had fed 5,000 people out of basically nothing. Someone brought him a sandwich, and he was like, how about 5,000 more sandwiches? Like, it was incredible what he did. And so the people in the crowd, were they were amazed. They saw this man multiply loaves and fishes. And so if you were to go to someone in that crowd and ask them in that moment, do you believe in Jesus? What do you think the response would be? Be like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I've got the proof right here. It's this awesome fish sandwich. This is incredible. Just look at it. This is incredible. But then what does Jesus do? Right after that, he gets up and he says, all right, everybody, I know you're enjoying the food, but if you want to follow me, what you really need to do is eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people start spitting out the sandwiches and they're like, wait, what? Like, we didn't know you were a vampire. Let's get out of here. And they take off. They're like, this is weird. This is strange. And Jesus is thinking, if you would have just stuck around, I would have explained what communion is. But you didn't want to stick around, so you just took off. And that's the reality. Jesus can see through how many of us are with him just to get free stuff. And the difference between people who actually want to follow him enough to listen to his words carefully and actually apply them. Now, we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says the unforgivable sin is whoever speaks against the Spirit? What does that mean? Let's look at verse 31. Jesus says this, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander, gossip can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Jesus is saying something incredibly profound here. He's saying that words matter to God. The condition of our heart is always God's focus because that's where he wants to build a home. What we say indicates where our hearts actually are. Look at verse 34. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can any good come from you? How can you who are evil say anything good? And then he says this, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Out of the mouth comes what is in the heart. Verse 35, he says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So what does that mean, to speak against the Spirit and to speak from a heart that is against God's Spirit? Remember how it says, in the beginning was the, the Word. So we're getting to the heart of the matter, the words. In the beginning was the Word. Now, when I heard that as a kid, I thought of a floating Bible flapping its pages through space like wings. Like, that's what I thought. In the beginning was the Bible? like flap. No, listen. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, it's not talking about the Bible. It's talking about what the whole Bible was written about, and that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. You see, it's a Greek word. It's the logos. And what it means is, the, the Greek word logos, in the beginning was the word, the logos. What it means is, in the beginning was the message of God. and the statement of God. And Jesus, that is his title. He is the word. He is the message and the statement of God. My favorite way to phrase it is Jesus is what God has to say. If you've ever asked the question, what would God say? The answer is he already said it. It was Jesus. And through all of time, through Jesus, he has been saying, I love you humanity. You're precious to me. I care about you. I want you to do well. I want you to have the good life, and I want you to be resurrected and freed of all of that sin that is tearing you down. So when he sent his son Jesus, he said all these things to us, not just through Jesus's words, but through his actions, through his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus is the literal word of God that speaks life. It's the best word you could ever hear, because in that one word, Jesus is wrapped up the entire hope of all humanity. So think of words. Think about messages, statements. Jesus says the unforgivable sin is to speak against the Spirit, to have a logos, to have a message that goes against the Spirit. Now, what is the logos of your life? What is the message or statement of your life? Is the message of your life, I live for me? My life is all about what I can get. My life is about my wants, my needs, my desires, my possessions. Is that our logos? When that is our message, Jesus says, that is a slap in the face to everything I lived and died for, everything I've been working for since the beginning of time. An illustration I give my high school students here at the church is one of, imagine a Jewish person who lived through World War II. 
and not only lived, but someone who was ripped out of their homes, and they and their families and friends were thrown into a concentration camp by the Nazis, and they suffered, and they died, and they watched their friends go to the gas chambers and get burned alive, and imagine someone went through all of that, a a Jewish person, and they, they survived, and they made it out, but now they live their life with these scars and these horrible memories of the battles and the gas chambers and the Nazis and the horrors of war, and they suffered and died through it. But through it all, they, 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 they survived and they prevailed, and they said, I'm going to raise my children right. I'm going to raise them in a way where they don't have to suffer the way I did. And so imagine a, a Jewish couple now going through these horrors of war, and now they're raising this young teenager and the, the, the child reaches a teenage age and becomes rebellious and says, Mom and Dad, I, I don't want anything to do with you. I want to go completely against you. I don't want to be a part of what you're about. And as the ultimate act of defiance, this young teenager, just to spite their parents, gets a swastika tattoo on their neck. Imagine that. That discomfort you feel right now because you recognize how horrible that would be, that's good. But we need to realize that when we live a life of sin, we are doing the same thing to God. When we live a life of sin, where basically sin is not physically, but, but, but spiritually tattooed on us, where people see our lives and the outward expression of our life is just sin. When people look at us, it's just they know we're constantly in sin and we want nothing to do with God. We are the ones with that swastika tattoo spitting in the face of our fathers and mothers, in the face of God. And we cannot do this. Jesus says to die this way is unforgivable. Here's the distinction. It's not unforgivable to live that way because Jesus can forgive it. But it is unforgivable to die that way. And death stats are astounding. 10 out of 10 people die. It's insane. So what is a sinful person to do? What is a sinful person like you or I to do? Well, we have to look at what is the word of our life. What is the message, the statement of our life? We have to change our message. We have to say Jesus is Lord, and we have to mean it. When we say Jesus is Lord, the implication is that we understand that we are not. It's a surrender of the wills. It's the laying down of arms. It's kneeling before the king and saying, I pledge allegiance to you and you alone. It's not an unforgivable sin to live that way because all you must do is turn to Jesus to be forgiven. The unforgivable sin is dying while still speaking that message. If you fail to let the word of God become your word, then when you die, all you have left is your word, and your word doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter what your story was if God wasn't in it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 36. He says these very things. He says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Now, when I heard this verse growing up, I thought of my speech teacher at school who brought up this verse because in my speeches, I would always say the word um. So he's like, you have to give an account of every empty word, you person who says um. And I freaked out. I was like, oh no, I'm going to show up to heaven and God's going to be like, you said um too much. And just, it freaked me out. It's not what they're saying, okay? It's just A weird misinterpretation. Look at verse 37. He says, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What is Jesus getting at? What he's saying is by the message of your life, by the statement of what your life is all about, you will either be lost or saved. What is the message of your life? Is it I'm independent, master of my own destiny, I make my own choices, or is it I am a sinner saved by grace alone? Jesus is Lord. To have your life's message be me, 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 what you're doing is you are blaspheming the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit of God, what, is, what, is, what does that even mean, the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God is not a force, like in Star Wars. It's not some mystical, fluid, strange being. What it is, is it is the third person of the Trinity. There's Father, Son, and Spirit, and they operate together as a loving unit who for all of time have loved humanity and wanted to save them. But it's hard to understand sometimes because we can see a father and son. Like when someone says father and son, you think of a father, like you know what that looks like. You have either a father or a son or both. But when it comes to spirit, we, like, what does our mind think of? When I was a kid, I used to think the spirit was literally, you know, that, that dove. Everyone look at that dove. See that right back there by the sound people? I literally thought that's what the Holy Spirit looked like. I thought it was like floating in my chest. I didn't even know it was a bird. Anyone with me on that? (laughs) 
So the spirit, it's like, what, what even is a spirit? The thing about a spirit is you can't see it, but you feel its effects. This mysterious person called the spirit or the Holy Ghost, if you're from an earlier tradition of church, it's, it's this amazing part of the Trinity that connects with us at our very soul level. In the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, the world was without form, and the Spirit of God hovered over the depths of the waters. In the Hebrew, the word spirit means breath. It's ruach, the breath of God. It's, it's, it's fascinating to think that in the very beginning, it was not just God the Father, because that's what we think sometimes. We think in the beginning was God the Father, and then Jesus was like hanging out somewhere, and then he showed up, and then when Jesus comes, he's like, oh, Spirit, time to tag team you in. No, from the very beginning of time, Father, Son, and Spirit were always there. At the beginning of the world, the Father, Son, and Spirit were dreaming of a world without sin, a world where you could be who you always were meant to be. And so the Spirit has always had a plan to save humanity. To blaspheme the Spirit is to reject that plan. It's to go against it with your life. It's a slap in the face to everything he has planned for humanity. It's the plan that we see fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the moment where Jesus responds to the Pharisees accusing him of using Satan's power is so epic. Like, I don't know if you read it in this way, but I kind of read Jesus almost as being, like, sarcastic uh, with these Pharisees. Like, they're like, well, obviously you're from Satan because you're casting out demons. I see him just, like, rolling his eyes and just thinking to himself, these Pharisees are so dumb. Help me, Father. I I mean, Jesus, basically, what he says in verse 27, he's he's like, wait, hold on. So, So you think I can drive out demons by Satan's power? Isn't that kind of like an oxymoron that doesn't really line up? It'd be like me saying, like, hey, look at this six-pack that I have. Not me. Jesus probably had one, not me. Uh, It's like saying, look at this six-pack I have. It's like me saying these rock-hard abs were accomplished through the power of McDonald's. It it makes no sense. That's in a different translation. You won't find that in the New King James. Anyway, in verse 28, he's very clear. He's saying, I have God's power. I'm not from Satan. I am from God, and I'm from the heavenly kingdom. And I love what Jesus says in verse 28. I paraphrase it this way. He's saying, if I am from God, and I am, then what that means for you is that the kingdom of God is crashing into your world right now, just blowing up your space. Can you handle that, Pharisees? Here's the reality. If you don't get on board with God's kingdom, the only alternative kingdom that you can live in is hell. And we have to talk about hell for a second because hell can sound oh so very harsh. Now, my dad taught an amazing, brilliant message on hell. If you haven't heard it, it's in this question series. Go back and listen to it on the website. So I'm not going to get too deep into it, but I want to cover a few things. That context, that idea of saying like, God made hell because he hates bad people and he wants to send them there and torture them for all of eternity— I think it's an incorrect way of thinking of hell. We have to think of it in context. So in the beginning, God created the earth, and the earth was perfect, but then we broke it, and we brought dying and death into the world. We poisoned the world. And God could have started over. He could have created a whole new space and made new people who would actually obey him, but instead he said, I love these people so much, I'm willing to die to save them. And so his plan was to build a bridge through Jesus and his death, and the story of the Bible, the way that it ends is it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. If you didn't hear Charlie's message a few weeks ago on the biblical timeline of how everything pans out, you should check it out. But at the end of all of that, the story is a reboot. It's a return to the way things were always supposed to be. We are going to live on a physical and yet spiritual planet, enjoying God's fellowship and company for all of eternity. It's going to be insane. And Jesus, even though this current phase of our world is going down in flames, Jesus makes an escape so clear. Think of it this way. This is a helpful illustration for me. Let's say we're on the Titanic, okay? And there's a captain, and he's doing a great job steering the ship. But then let's say that people from the boat said, we can be better captains. And they push him out of the way, and they take the steering wheel, and they try steering the ship, and they run into an iceberg. And now the ship is slowly sinking. And the captain says, I've got to save these people. So he grabs his son and says, let's, let's build a raft. And so they're grabbing driftwood, and they're, they spend hours and hours and hours, and they're building this raft. And in the process, the son ends up drowning. And the father is like, I just, I've got to save these people. Even though my son just drowned, I have to rescue them. So the captain stands up on the raft and he says, everyone, listen, the ship is going down. You have to get on this raft. It's the only way. 
And some do, but then there's some who reject the captain, and they're like, what are you talking about, captain? Everything's fine here. The the boat's fine. I mean, it's all well and good that you made that raft. It's a nice raft, but, you know, I'm going to stay on the boat. It's nice here. We've got champagne. We've got chandeliers. We're partying. This is great. Leonardo DiCaprio's here. Everything's wonderful. And is the boat really sinking? I mean, I doubt it. Like, that's just a myth. And, you know, if it is sinking, I'm sure there's other ways we can get off of it. There's probably other ways to be saved. There's probably other rafts that'll drift by. Why do we need to do that raft? Why are you so narrow-minded, Captain? If they stay on the sinking ship, whose fault is it? Is it the captain's? I mean, is the captain a cruel and hateful person in this story? No, he's bending over backwards to save people. What about God's anger? Does God get angry? Yeah, the Bible says he does. But when I look at a God who is angry towards sin, I don't see a God who is annoyed, like just like annoyed that humans have broken his rules and is ready to furiously destroy them. No, I see a loving God who desperately loves his children and sees sin like a poisonous fire eating them alive. And he's a father who will stop at nothing to save as many of his children as he can. He's a father who truly loves the sinner but hates the sin. Is God angry when we sin? Yes, absolutely. But wouldn't you be angry if your house was on fire and there was people that you loved inside the house and you were trying to put the fire out and one of your kids came up and started like throwing gasoline on the fire? Would you just be like, oh, like you're fine? No, you would be angry, right? Raise your hand if you'd be angry. Yes, but it's an anger that comes out of love, not out of hate. God is angry when we sin because we are working against his mission to save humanity when we do. Listen, sin, this is what you need to get in your heads about sin. Sin is not about deeds. We think of sin as bad deeds. We need to stop thinking of sin as bad deeds. We've got this idea that there is a list of things that God just can't tolerate. Like, he just doesn't like those things, so you just better not do them. Like, kind of like, you know, you go to someone's house, and, and they're like, in our house, we take off our shoes before we step on the carpet, and then if you don't listen, they're just like super passive-aggressive and annoyed at you. We think of that with God sometimes. Like, we, when we look at the Ten Commandments, it's like, oh, those are the ten things that really tick God off. I better not do those, or he'll send me to hell unless I have Jesus. Listen, we need to stop thinking about sins as bad deeds and start thinking of sin as what it really is, an evil, destructive, ancient force that's been around since the early days of space and time, a dark force that is out to destroy humanity and separate as many of God's family from him as possible. What drives sin is rebellion. It started in heaven with the angels, with an angel named Lucifer who said, I could be a better God than Yahweh. And think about how how seductive sin is that Satan was able to convince angels who stood in the presence of God. How much more are we mortal humans able to be tempted? Every time we sin, we are saying in that moment, I believe myself to be God in this moment. We are echoing what Satan originally said, I can do this better than Yahweh. No one can tell me what to do. I'll make my own decisions. I'm not going to forgive that person because I just don't want to. I'm not going to be honest because it'll make me look bad. I'm not going to serve this person because I'd rather serve myself. And I'm not going to give into this. I'm going to give into this temptation because it makes me feel good. In those moments, we are truly declaring without a doubt what we truly believe. It's not that Yahweh is king. It's that we believe that we are. When we sin, we are temporarily aligning ourselves with that dark, destructive force, that army of hell that is hell-bent on fighting Yahweh for the ultimate prize, the prize of declaring themselves king of the universe. And guess what? The Bible already tells us that story has already been written, and it does not go well for their side. And so we need to be on the right side. Stop thinking of sin as a list of no's and see it for what it is. It's a dark force out to destroy humanity. It has always been about the war between good and evil and what side you are fighting for on any given moment. We need to seriously reevaluate how we see God. He is not a grumpy old man in the sky who is annoyed at us that we can't keep his simple commands. He is a father who is doing everything he can to save as much of his family as possible. If that is not your view of God, you need to radically rethink your position. Does God hate sinners and want them to burn in hell? No. But the reality to the question of will people who reject God, will sinners who do not accept Jesus burn in hell? Well, that answer is yes. Hell is something that we need to take seriously. We can never downplay hell. 
you know, so many times when you grow up in a church, you only hear kind of one perspective your whole life. And then for me, as I've gotten older and I've made friends from other churches in different denominations, I've realized like there's some different views on what we call non-essentials. And right now there's a debate in the theological world about hell and about the flames of hell. And there's people who are saying like, well, Jesus talks about the flames of hell and some of the Old Testament people bring it up. Is that real or is that a metaphor? And, you know, I think it's a respectable, a respectable debate, but I think Tim Keller said it well when he said this. Tim Keller says, if the flames of hell are a metaphor, then they are only a metaphor for something much worse. That's heavy. But it tells us that we can never downplay hell. We can never have this idea of hell won't be so bad. No, it is so bad that if you show up and there's no flames, what awaits you will be even worse than flames. You will wish there were flames. The reality is that humans were never intended to go to hell. Think about it. What does the Bible say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the hell? No. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And where did he put man? On earth. In the beginning, heaven and earth existed, working together, and it was sin that ripped them apart. What does the Bible say about hell? Who was it made for? The demons. The wicked angels who rebelled against Yahweh. The ones who target us the ones who try to make us their victims. The intention was never for humans to go there, but unfortunately, if humans won't get off the sinking ship that is this life, there's no other place for them to go. Once this ship sinks to the bottom of the ocean, all that awaits is hell, and there's no escape from that place. And again, whose fault is it if you stay on the ship when there is a perfectly good life raft awaiting you? All you have to do is take a step of faith off the ship and into the raft. Now, here's a question. Is the unforgivable sin a skeleton in God's closet? What do I mean by that? When someone says a skeleton in someone's closet, they're usually referring to like a politician or a celebrity who seems squeaky clean on the outside, but they've got some dark stuff in their past that they're praying that they won't come out because it'll be a big problem for them. So is this something where it's kind of buried in the Bible that there's this unforgivable sin that God can't forgive? He's not powerful enough to forgive. And it's just like, well, he can't do it. And it's just this one verse. And it's like, oh, I hope people kind of look over it. Pastors shouldn't probably teach on it because it'll make people doubt God. Here's the thing. When I look at the unforgivable sin, I don't think, oh, what a shame that God can't forgive that sin. I think that the fact that there's only one unforgivable sin is a testimony to just how great God's forgiveness is. Think about it. The unforgivable sin is not God saying, if you swear, or if you had a lustful thought, or if you got angry, or if you're disrespectful, then you're unforgiven. Because think about it, every single one of us in this room would fit one of those bills, so we would all be doomed. The unforgivable sin literally is just dying without accepting Jesus as Lord. That's like saying the incurable disease is the one that you refuse to take medicine for. Think of all the things that you would never forgive in your flesh. Someone killing your wife or children. Someone lighting your house on fire. Stabbing you in the back and causing you to lose everything. And yet Jesus was beaten to the point of death and nailed on a cross and he was able to forgive. Jesus says, listen, there is so much that I'm willing to forgive you of. Jesus has an infinite capacity of forgiveness. I think about Peter. There's a story in the Bible where Peter goes to Jesus, and I don't know if he got into a fight with one of the other disciples, you know, but maybe, you know, one of them caught more fish, and they were bragging, and Peter got all hurt about it. And, but he shows up to Jesus, and he's like, hey, Jesus, like, hypothetically, if I had to forgive someone, like, what's the limit? Like, how many times do I forgive them, and then I, like, don't have to forgive them anymore? Like, is it seven? And Jesus is like, hmm, hmm, yeah, uh, uh, try uh, seven times 70, Peter. And Peter's just like, whoa, that's a lot of forgiving. Now, 70 times 7 is not a spiritual mathematical formula. Like, oh, 7 is the number of completion, and so it's like you forgive until it's complete. Like, no. Jesus is just using literally the biggest number that Peter can think of. That's, that's what he's saying. He's using an expression to basically say it's a lot. It's infinity. Peter, how many people do you know who are willing to forgive infinitely? Now, the skeptic in us might be saying, but why is it unforgivable? I mean, can't God just chill out and forgive it? Why is it an unforgivable sin to die while rejecting Jesus? Well, I think if we were to ask Jesus that today, he would say, listen, the only reason that sin is unforgivable is because it's the sin that you won't let me forgive you of. Isn't it foolish to reject Jesus' forgiveness of sin and then get upset that he is not able to forgive you because you rejected him? 
The unforgivable sin is really the sin of not allowing Jesus to forgive you. That's what it is. And so the Pharisees in that moment, if you're reading the text, you have to understand this is not a condemnation from Jesus. It's a warning to the Pharisees. He's not saying, oh, Pharisees, you just said something negative about the Spirit. You are condemned forever. Because think about it. There were many Pharisees that came to Christ. There were like Nicodemus, many Pharisees who sought out Jesus and became saved. The early church was filled with ex-Pharisees. So it's not a condemnation. It's a warning. Jesus is saying, listen, Pharisees, you're on thin ice because I'm standing right in front of you, and I've proven to you who I am. No one has the power to do what I do unless they come from God. You know the prophecies. You know the scriptures. If you continue down this path and you perish, there will be no forgiveness for you. I think he says this to them out of compassion. In conclusion, we have to talk about white robes. In Matthew chapter 22, there's a king whose son is having a wedding. And there's a huge feast prepared. Everyone's invited, the rich and the powerful and the socialites. But what do they do? They actually end up killing the messenger. They kill the king's servant. And so the king is like, who are these people? Who does this? And the king goes to war with those people and takes them out. But then the king says, we still need guests for the wedding. So he goes to his servant and he says, go invite everybody. And the servant's like, everyone, my lord, the drunks prostitutes, tax collectors? And the king's like, yes, everybody. Tell them they're invited. And what they need to get in the door is just these free white robes, which is awesome if you're like a street urchin because you've got smelly, nasty clothes. And now there's this clean white robe that you're given and it's free. And so the king has the party and there's all these street people coming in with their filthy robes thrown off. And now they're wearing these bright, clean white robes. But then there's a guy there in his filthy clothes. And the king is like, what are you doing? Why didn't you accept the robes? And the man says, ah, I was fine without him. And the king says, no, you need those robes. And the man's like, I don't want him. And the king's like, okay, tie this man up and throw him out. Now, there's probably some of you here where you read that story and your natural inclination is to go, yeah, he got what he deserved. But there's maybe some of you who are more like me where your natural inclination is to read that story and think like, well, hold on, that actually doesn't seem that loving for the king to tie that guy up and throw him off. Like, what's, what's going on here? Like, why is the king so particular about a certain type of robe? We need to look at the spiritual subtext behind the story because every parable of Jesus is not about simple moral lessons. There are always ways of understanding complex spiritual truths. So let's break down the concept of the robes. Think of the clothes as human nature. Everyone look at your clothes. Pull a sleeve, look down, okay? So the clothes that we have, let's imagine our clothes as representing our human nature. The clothes that we start out with before we get white robes represent our human nature that is corrupted. So think of rotten, smelly clothes with mustard and pasta sauce stains that you've been working out in the fields with, and you've just got oil and dirt and nastiness. And this represents something deeper, a rotten, wicked heart that all of us have. When Adam and Eve sinned, it corrupted humanity to the core. It changed the very fabric of our soul, mind, body, right down to our DNA. Yeah, no, literally, our DNA. Like, this is scientific. Think about it. The first humans were not engineered by God to die. They were given DNA that was incorruptible. It was DNA that would last forever. But because of sin, the human genome was corrupted to the point where it would deteriorate, get old, get sick, get diseased, and eventually die. Now picture the white robes. The white robes represent a perfect human condition. You take off the old robes and you put on this new robe that is spotless and pure. It's like this amazing like ShamWow robe where if you spill something on it, it just absorbs and it's, it's perfectly clean again. It's a condition that will never die. It'll never get old, sick. It'll never give in to sin. It's a condition where one day it'll be so perfect that we will never be able to sin anymore. It'll be completely free of sin and its consequences. The story of the Bible has always been about a desire to renew, to restore and resurrect. Just like Jesus was resurrected, the great hope of the Christian is that we will be resurrected. And this world will be resurrected. But listen, God cannot allow sin into the new creation. There is going to be a new creation. You can't enter the gates with your old clothes on, with your old corrupted nature. Because if he were to allow that to happen, then the whole process would start over again. We'd have to go through the whole thing. Another broken planet with wars and violence and racism and hatred and sexual brokenness and destruction and death. The reason that God cannot allow sin into the new creation is because he loves his people too much to allow that. 
That's the reason he died, to restore all things. Most of all, to restore the broken relationship of the family, of God the Father and his sons and daughters. So you have to understand this story is not a king saying like, these are the robes that I picked. I like the style. I don't like your clothes. Where's the clothes that I like? It's all about me. No, this is the doctor saying, I am not going to let you into the room with the other patients unless you take the antidote because I love them and you too much. You're poisoned. You need the cure. The unforgivable sin is just simply the rejection of the cure. The doctor can't save you unless you step up to the operating table and he is always giving us that choice. So as I invite the band back up, we're going to close. And what we're going to do is we're going to sing some songs of worship. And there are going to be people on the right and left side who are going to be here with a desire to pray for you. Now, if you're here today and you've struggled with wondering if you've committed the unforgivable sin, if everything I said just went over your head, I will summarize it as this. If you're worried about it, you probably haven't committed it. And also, if you're alive, you definitely haven't committed it because the unforgivable sin is to die while rejecting Jesus. If you're here and you've rejected him, you need to know that he loves you. I love my dad so much. He is such an amazing mentor and father and a great example of a pastor and a husband and all these things. If I can fault him for one thing, it's that he's too dang fast. When I'm with him and we're going somewhere, we've been on missions trip, we're at the airport, I'll like stop to look at my phone and I'll look up and he is like three miles ahead of me. He is just always on mission. I love it. But sometimes with God, we can have this feeling of, am I going to get like left behind by the Lord? Like, is my sin so great that God looks at me and I'm trying to do this Christian life thing, but God says, your sin is unforgivable. You got to keep up. You, you're making mistakes. You just, you got to get on board with me or you're toast. That's not his heart. The Father's heart for us is that he expects that we're going to fall. He knows we're going to make mistakes, and he is anticipating those mistakes. And every time you fall, he is standing there saying, get back up. Keep walking with me. I love you. If you're here today and you haven't experienced that love, I want to encourage you, don't risk committing the unforgivable sin of just rejection, because we could die at any moment health, natural disasters, getting hit by a car. There's so many ways. And I know people who thought they could kind of beat the clock on that. And they said, I'll wait until my deathbed. But then that day came when they weren't expecting. And I promise you, if you choose Jesus, if you choose his way over your own, (laughs) it'll be the best decision you ever make. Because what you're doing is you're trading something broken for something he is fixing day by day. My prayer for you is if you're here and you haven't accepted Jesus, that you wouldn't leave here today without doing so. Lord, we love you. God, I just ask that you would be here in this moment and that you would speak to hearts, draw people out. Lord, if there's people here who've love you and they've been walking with you, but they've just been afraid that they've committed the unforgivable sin. Help them to know that is not a worry for them to worry about. They are saved. They are secure. They are forgiven. And you are so ready to help them walk in repentance and freedom from their sins. Help them to step up to that plate. Help them, Lord, to take your hand. They can't do it on their own, but what they need to do is just take your hand and let you pull them up out of the darkness. Pray for the Christians here who are struggling with sin. Help them to know their sin is so forgivable. If there's anyone here who does not know you, Jesus, I pray that you would draw them to you right now. Help them just to come up and pray with someone. Or even if they're afraid of that, help them just in their own heart to talk to you because you don't need a pastor or a priest to talk to you, Jesus. You just need you. Help them, Lord, to to admit that they need you to accept your forgiveness and find freedom from their sin. We ask all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.